either folks and welcome or welcome back, as the case may be, to NTI Japan's Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Thanks for tuning in. Great to have you with us today. And before we jump right in, a quick heads up. If you've got a business that operates in Japan in English or caters to English-speaking expats who are living in Japan or English speakers who have any sort of interest in Japan, really, and I know many of you do, we're soon going to be opening the podcast up for sponsorship. We're now at well over a thousand full episode downloads or streams per month, which is close to 40,000 or so downloads since we started and about 15,000 full episode downloads per year. So that's plenty of ears, all of which belong to English speakers with some sort of affiliation to Japan. About 60% of them are from within Japan itself, and the rest are all over the world. So plenty in the US, in Canada, in Australia, the UK, a whole lot in Singapore and Hong Kong as well. And the vast majority of them obviously are earning at least a comfortable income since they have some interest at least in purchasing property here. So if any of this sounds like a target market for your business or any project that you're involved in, this may just be the place for you to insert a short segment into. So we've got very affordable options, uh, either simple mentions by myself at the start, middle or end of the podcast, or a short interlude segment mid-episode uh, of, say, up to 25 seconds, which could include your very own content, custom-made by you if you prefer. So hit us up. We're happy to cooperate with you and drive some business your way, as long, of course, as we feel comfortable with whatever it is that you may be advertising. So we take our listeners' time pretty seriously here. We're not interested in spamming them, but rather in offering them product, services, or information which would actually benefit them, like the podcast itself. But the best part of advertising in a podcast, as you probably know, is that you've got a very engaged, fully attentive, uh, normally fully committed potential clientele because they have subscribed and they're generally regularly consuming the content and the results do speak for themselves. You can Google podcast advertising benefits and find out the numbers are really phenomenal, especially when compared with other types of advertising. Okay, so back to the uh, usual program. Not sure if you happen to have listened to our last episode in which we were recommending to or maybe more accurately begging first-time investors, including experienced investors who are venturing out of their backyard for the very first time, to listen to the professionals that they've chosen to work with. And we've also listed some of the things which can go wrong and do regularly go wrong when people don't listen. So on today's episode... We've got a recording of a business call with someone in exactly that position, just about to pull the trigger on their first investment here. Now, this guy is not a newbie to Japan, not by a long shot. He's actually lived here far longer than I have, but he is a first-time investor. And I'm happy to say he's a pretty savvy listener too. He's actually prepared a list of fantastic questions, which I think many of you would benefit from. His main questions were related to both the purchase and then the subsequent management processes of investment properties here in Japan. And there were very thorough questions at that. Now, we've discussed many of the things that he asks about here in the past, particularly in the earlier episodes of this podcast a few years back when we did a walkthrough of the investment life cycle. But we also touched on many of the later topics that we've discussed here in the past. So things like financing, attractive investment locations, including some specific examples, um, what it is that attracts different kinds of tenants to different kinds of properties, and a whole lot more. So really 30 or so minutes packed full of information that covers all stages of the real estate investment process here in Japan. And that's all in one episode. So I hope you find plenty of value in it. And of course, if you've got further questions that you want answered, we're always happy to talk shop, either here on the podcast or in a private conversation. Don't be shy, drop us a line and we'll hit you right back. <laughs> 
So enjoy this Q&A session, and I will see you again on the other side. All right. I'll let you start then. <laughs> yeah, so no, no, I mean, just go for it. Tell me a bit about your background, and then we can get to what you're looking for. Sure. Um, well, I've been in Japan for a total of about 15 years now. Right. Uh, right now, I have a, a small savings that I'm looking to invest into something. Uh, I considered some stocks, or I considered, um, you know, putting them back home in some savings bonds and whatnot, but... Uh, I want something that's going to create more of a cash flow rather yep. than a long-term kind of maybe investment. Right. So we looked at the uh, two apartment buildings. Um, I lived in two or three different apartment buildings in my time while I've been in Japan. So uh, it seems like it possibly could be a very stable income. Um, I'm just not very clear on if this is the right thing for me because my information is lacking, which is why I'm trying to reach out to you today. Okay, I mean, it, it is stable um, as long as they're not too old or not too remote kind of thing. So there are some of them that stand empty because of those two, two reasons. Um, but otherwise, yeah, and I mean, I guess how old and how remote they might or might not be also depends obviously on your budget. So did you have a rough idea? And are you buying cash? You're buying with a loan? What's the, uh, what's the setup? Actually, I think um, one of the questions I have kind of delves into that a little bit, but um, I would probably be using a loan. Uh, I saw one of your, actually probably I can dive into the first question since um, it kind of goes into that. Yeah. So um, my first question is, in, in one of your videos on YouTube, you mentioned that an entry-level apartment building would probably looking at roughly around 2 million yen investment, um, and a reasonable, reasonable one would be maybe around 5 million yen initial payment. Uh, um, not an apart. Kind of cool. You're talking about a unit, not an apartment building. Yeah. Um, well, see, that's kind of the clarity I'm looking for here. So, um, if, if you're referring to a unit, what sort of uh, return could you expect for that kind of investment if you got a loan for the rest of the money? And uh, what kind of price or uh, atomic uh, down payment would you need for an entire building? Um. Okay, so just so we're clear, when you say 2 million, 5 million yen, you mean 20,000, 50,000 US roughly, yeah? Roughly, yeah. Yeah, and you mean that as a down payment for the loan or the cost of the property? Uh, well, I would assume that would be required by the bank as a down payment in order to qualify for the loan. But again, that's probably something you're more clear on. Well, I mean, it really depends on your individual scenario. If you've been living and earning in Japan for 15 years and it's mostly stable income history, then you should be able to qualify. Are you on a permanent visa? Yeah, uh, yes. So you should be able to qualify for a standard Japanese loan. Okay. Um, in which case, depending on the bank and depending on the property profile, it could be as much as 90 or 100%. Um, so the down payment portion could be fairly minute. Okay. Um, but if we take, let's say we take 80% um, as a sort of safe conservative estimate. Mm -hmm. So if you put in 2 million as a down payment, that means you've got 8 million from the bank. Right. And that's 100,000 US. That's not going to buy you a building though. Okay. So if we were looking at a building, let's say, let's talk about something small with four units in it. What sort of um, price would you look at for something that's not downtown Tokyo, but maybe in like a sleeper city? Um, well, in the last few months specifically, uh, mainly due to Corona, we have seen some pretty cheap ones. I think, if you let me just open, I just actually compiled a spreadsheet of those for um, another customer. Just give me a sec. 
So the cheapest that we saw so far, I mean, in, in a good area that we would be comfortable recommending, um, I think was 28 million from memory. Just give me a sec, I'll open it now. So what have we got here? We've got 30, 35 million, 37, 39, 28.8 is the cheapest that we saw. Um, and that was four units in Nagoya, um, 2007. If you're looking around Tokyo, Tokyo would be difficult. Yokohama has got a few that are maybe 35 to 40 mil. Um, okay. Haven't seen anything there below that. Hamamatsu City, we saw something just under 40 mil. Again, but we're talking about reasonable build years, etc. because just with buildings, the entire structure um, maintenance is on you. Right. Um, so we probably recommend not to go below 2,000 or so, just so you've got a few good years before you need to start um, piling money onto it. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say between 30 to 40 mil is probably the entry level for them. Um, 35 maybe um, these days it might it might go up again once uh, the corona eases off but at the moment we can still get them for 30 to th uh, I wouldn't say 30 that was rare that one maybe 35 ish right. cool just take a look as we yeah, yeah. Um, okay so that, that's good information what's the uh, the next one I have is is what are the legal responsibilities of an apartment owner in Japan uh, one of the examples I would use is like what do taxes look like? Uh, are those filed at the same time as like income taxes? Do you have to have yearly inspections? Uh, things like that. So, well, it's a mix of what you're asking is really a mix between uh, your responsibilities and your rights, right? So okay. you your tax is basically your normal income tax, unless you're buying as a corporation. If you're just buying under your own name or you're as a couple or something of that sort, it's just normal income tax. It's added to whatever you're making yearly. Okay. And so it might bring you up a threshold if you're pretty close to it. But usually if you're looking at a single building, um, that's going to maybe give you net, um, let's say, annually, maybe another $20,000. $25,000, so probably, unless you're just on the uh, edge of a threshold, it's probably not going to take you up too far. Okay. So whatever tax you've been paying, that's not going to change much. You've got your property tax, which usually works out to be um, somewhere between half a percent to one and a half percent, maybe two percent if the building is um, uh, hugely overvalued by the government for any reason. And um, otherwise, your municipal taxes, because you're living in Japan, then you'll be paying municipal taxes for that location as well. Um, but that's usually, a pretty, that's usually a pretty small amount. It's nothing that would change your bottom line much. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, and then other things like uh, inspections, things that we are obligations to allow the rental to continue? Um, well, there are no inspections in Japan while the property is tenanted. So the laws here are very tenant-oriented. You don't enter a property unless the tenant specifically requests that you do for maintenance or something of that sort. And even then, you'd probably, if you want to get normal Japanese tenants and you don't know, you're not going to be catering specifically to foreigners. Um, so if you're dealing directly with Japanese tenants, you want to have a property manager in between you and them. They're going to freak out if they've got a gaijin landlord who just starts contacting them directly. Figured that. Yeah. 
and then you wouldn't go I mean you can request to go in you can request an inspection but in most cases the tenant will move out if you do that okay um, they're just not they're not used to landlords um, visiting while they're living in the property got it okay mm. so okay. I mean aside from that if anything breaks down obviously you need to fix it if it was there to begin with um, some things are considered emergency so electric or water um, malfunctions anything that could cause a fire basically and um, anything related to security like uh, an outdoor leading window or door that doesn't work properly that needs to be attended to immediately sure uh, anything else you can get quotes and you can say you know you can sort of argue with the tenant that that doesn't need to be repaired but again you always run the risk of them just moving out gotcha yeah and the, uh, because the laws are tenant-oriented, if they do move out, even if it's mid-lease, at the most you'll be able to get off them is maybe two months of rent. Okay. And you're talking about if they break a lease? Yes. Okay. So we put in the tenancy lease, in most cases you put in, uh, we put in at least, uh, if you buy a building that's already got tenants in them, you might be inheriting uh, leases that don't have this uh, clause in them. But if you make a new lease, we would normally put in it um, that if they leave within the first year of tenancy, then the normal lease term is two years. That's the average. Usually that's what people sign up for. So if they leave within the first year, they need to pay a two-month penalty. And if they leave within the second year, it's a one-month penalty. Right. Um, but that's really the extent of what you'll get from them. If there's damages, um, I mean, th there's not really any intentional or just um, negligence damages in Japan, but some people especially the elderly pensioners um, of the male uh, persuasion or the um, hikikomori types. They mm -hmm. just leave all the doors closed. They never turn, turn a fan on. They might smoke in the apartment a lot. So there is a lot of wear and tear um, if they move out after an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And so that obviously needs to be attended to. If there's any damages that are reasonably, you can reasonably assume were caused by them or by their negligence, then you can try to get that off them um, either through their uh, guarantee company, if they've got one. And okay. again, that's something that we'll usually insist on when we let new tenants in. Um, or you just keep their security deposit, but that's usually just one or two months of rent, not beyond that. So the guarantee company is usually the better security. That'll cover up to three months or more even um, in case of delinquent rents or damages or anything of that sort. Cool. Okay. Um, actually, you kind of touched on it. Uh, just a second ago, but can you kind of go over how repairs and replacements of uh, amenities work? So, for example, uh, maybe you've got an air cone in, in the in the unit, and it, it just you know it uh, lets go of the ghost and needs to be replaced. Um, is that all out of pocket of the owner, or is there some kind of insurance that we buy to cover that stuff, or how does that work? Not for normal wear and tear. So anything in the interior of the property just dies because it malfunctions and dies. Um, that's going to be on you. There's no insurance for that. Um, insurance covers um, natural disasters, damages, fire damages, um, damages caused by your property to other properties in the vicinity. So, for example, if you've got a water leak and it leaks down into the unit below yours, Assuming you're owning a unit in a co-owned block. Yeah? So if it leaks down to the unit below yours, your insurance will cover third-party damages 100%. But your damages, if that's done just because the pipe burst because it's old, that's not going to be covered. Okay. In most cases, I mean, 
Some property managers get creative with the renovation uh, estimates and they sort of uh, put a lot of the uh, cost on the unit below as opposed to yours. Um, we wouldn't inquire with them too much about it sort of thing. So sometimes you can get a bit more coverage than you'd get in other ways. But um, generally speaking, wear and tear is on you, whatever it is. Okay, understood. Um, one of the questions my wife had was, uh, if an apartment uh, unit has uh, an unfortunate event, yeah, uh, a death basically, it, it, yeah, yeah, or yeah. or an, uh, an intended death, yeah, uh, and it takes place. How, how is that uh, treated, and how does that devalue the unit? How is that uh, remedied? Um, so we would normally get. We would highly recommend at least that you get um, uh, death in property insurance coverage as well. Um, that costs, it's not much, it uh, used to be just 15, 20 bucks a year, now it's closer to 40, 50 a year because the population is getting older. So that would cover you first off for up to a million yen in renovations, repairs and cleaning and so forth, which usually covers what you'd need to do interior if you're talking about studios or 1K and that sort of thing. And then it also covers you for two years of um, reduced or no rents whatsoever because it's obviously difficult to rent out a property where there's been a death. Um, if the death was natural or accidental, um, there is a stigma, but it's not huge. So we can repopulate them at some stage, maybe at a lower rent. Mm -hmm. If it's a suicide or murder, we fortunately haven't, haven't had one of those cases yet, but um, that does tend to get onto all of those websites which tenants can search uh, and find out if these sort of things have happened. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that might be a bit more difficult. I can't, again, I can't testify from experience. We haven't had one of those cases yet, but we have had quite a few cases where people just died of natural causes, mostly elderly. Um, and we did manage to release them um, at quite similar rent to what it was before. Um, sometimes you have like, officially you, s the property managers will usually tell the next tenant in line, but they kind of forget to say that afterwards. Mm -hmm. So once you get one tenant in there, maybe it's a slightly reduced rent, and then the next tenant in line will probably be back to normal again. So they make, um, the typical charge is 5% of the gross rental income. Okay. And you'll sometimes run across some agencies that charge a bit less or a bit more. We've seen everything from 2.5%, and 3%, and all the way up to 10%. Um, if you work with them directly, you can just shop around. If it's us, we usually appoint the same person that we're working with in that area that handles uh, all of our properties for all of our customers. And I'd say the average that we work with is usually 5%. And okay. then when they place a new tenant, they would be charging the first month of rental income if it was a really easy placement. And they just had to advertise a bit and, and they found somebody quickly. If it looks like it's a challenging property or a challenging time of the year or these days with Corona, for example, which is a long challenging period, um, then they'll increase their advertising efforts by putting in a large banner, featured listings, sharing the uh, listing with other property managers and so forth. Um, or they would be offering some bonuses to the tenant, in which case the total cost to you might go up to 
the most we've got Saint Sapporo where the winters are really rough and it's hard to find the tenants in the winter we sometimes go up to maybe four or five uh, months of rent um, usually the placement fee will end up being uh, I'd say the average is two months is that is that why most um, the renting uh, sorry management companies will charge two months rent at the signing of a contract is that where that's going um, charge the tenant you mean right so when I was a tenant, I had to pay two months rent in addition to the normal rent to sign the contract or to extend it. And no, that's that's on the tenant side. So that's um, one month, usually security deposit, which is supposed to be returned to you if everything is uh, hunky-dory when you return the property. Sure. And one month, uh, that's their sign-up fee. So they get one month of rent when they sign you on to a new contract. That's what they charge you, though. That's not, not, they don't charge the owner for that. Mm. Um, and okay. on, on renewal, I think, depending again on the agency, they sometimes charge two weeks or one month um, whenever you renew the lease. Mm. Okay. Um, but that's, that's beside that. The placement fee is what they charge the landlord whenever they place a new tenant. Um, so, assuming that um, after considerations, whatever, and I, I say, okay, yeah, I, I want to go ahead and get one of these. What kind of a timeline would someone be looking at from, you know, just starting to look at buildings to owning and kind of generating revenue? Is that like a one-year process, six-month process? Uh, depends on how picky you are, I suppose. <laughs> okay. And most of our customers, if they've got reasonable requirements, and we'll usually try to point them in the right direction just to, um, to help them understand what's achievable and what's not achievable. Um, most of them, from the time they start looking, takes them maybe three to four months to settle. So maybe a month, month and a half looking at properties, maybe two months at worst, and then another two months worst case um, from offer to settlement. If you're living in Japan, you can probably shorten that period because there's no international postage required. You don't need notary publics, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so I'd say two to three months, probably. Um, okay, cool. But again, depending on what you're looking for and how rare it is. So it could, there could be some cases. Like, for example, now we're settling on a building where um, uh, five of the six units are normal leased, uh, uh, leased tenants, but one of them was uh, the landlord's acquaintance, which he let on in there without a lease. So we had to wait until he instructed him to move out and then we have to wait until he renovates the unit and so, so things can take long if it's a unique case got it um, but generally okay. speaking I'd say yeah, two to three months if, you're, if you've got a bank loan involved though it depends on how quickly the bank will approve it so that could add another month or two okay yeah that's kind of what I was going to after next um, you know, further to the previous question how difficult is it to get a loan from a Japanese bank for this purpose if we were aiming for like uh, just kind of a, an entry level good quality building. So it's a four unit building and it's been made, you know, within the last 10 years. Um, I would say that depends on a few factors. So where is it located? It's a lot easier to get loans for uh, properties in Tokyo, Yokohama, Osaka kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you enter the bank and, you know, make those first contacts at least uh, together with your wife, that'll probably be a lot easier. And just having a, a Japanese face involved in the process tends to make it easier. 
Um, some of the agents that we work with will also help you with that. So we can, um, sometimes the agent has already got a few good contacts at the bank that they've worked with um, for any extended period of time, so they could help you. And okay. um, it also depends on your Japanese level. So if the loan's under your name, um, they'll probably want to make sure that you uh, can read, write, and speak pretty fluently. Mm, okay. Yeah. But again, if you can, does your wife work? Does she have an income stream? No. No. Okay. So we yes. can't we can't have the loan under her name. No, no. She okay. wouldn't want it anyway. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, in that case, um, I would say doable, but could be a bit challenging depending on the property and your level of Japanese. Okay. Mm. All right. Sounds good. I'll just note that. Um, okay. So. Probably much less common in Japan, but how does a landlord deal with a non-paying tenant? Um, it's pretty easy in Japan in the sense that you don't usually need to force evict them or go to court. Um, there's no, I mean, they don't squat. Like if they don't pay, usually we don't really get cases of non-payment. We get sometimes slightly delayed payments or slightly reduced payments. And you send them a letter and they pay you up again. And if it becomes like a routine and uh, they're chronically late in paying or chronically uh, uh, paying less, you just send them a last warning letter and tell them that if, you know, if it happens again, they're going to have to move out. And then if they do it again, you send them another letter to say, please move out by this date and they're gone. Okay. And, and does the management company uh, address that stuff or is that directly from the, uh, the owner of the building? It's always through the management company and based on your instructions. So they're quite professional here in the sense that they're never going to swindle you or take your money or anything of that sort, but they can be a bit passive. Mm. So you do need to sort of um, push them and instruct them yeah, and so prop them until they end up doing it. And uh, they'll just try to... Send, they'll, I mean, their default will be to call and call again and call again and maybe come and knock on the door and say, hey, don't do that again. And they can carry that on for a few years. So if you want them to a bit, be a bit more confrontational and you need to instruct them, okay, now send them a registered letter and have the letter say this and this and that. And they, they will do it. They just don't do it on their own accord. Okay. Um, do you find that there are better deals or offers or even better ROI from buying in like sleeper towns? So not downtown Tokyo, you might maybe in like... Um, a Chiba New Town or uh, you know, someplace in the outskirts that are not really business oriented but primarily just residential? Um, yeah, anywhere out of central Tokyo and Osaka will always have a lot better yield. Okay. Uh, so the yields will be much higher, but um, I mean, retenanting, depending on how far, how far you are from a commercial center, retenanting can take a bit longer when you get a vacancy. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, the sweet spot, I would say, if you're looking at Tokyo and Osaka, the sweet spot is probably up to 45 minutes away from Tokyo or from a central enough part of Tokyo. Okay. Um, Chiba, Chiba is its own city. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily look at Chiba just by, through proximity to Tokyo. It's got a few industries going for it and quite a few people going there um, to live, I mean. So, I wouldn't call Chiba a sleeper town, but... Um, uh, Saitama also, it's actually just 30 minutes from Tokyo, even though it's a totally different uh, prefecture, uh, prefecture or it's not part of the greater uh, Tokyo metropolitan area anyway, but right. it's actually a lot closer to Tokyo than some of the places that are included in the uh, greater metro. Mm -hmm. um, 
Osaka, Nagoya, Fukuoka, Kyoto, if we can find something attractive there, there are some pretty good deals. Um, all of these places will have better, Kumamoto, and they'll all have better yields than Tokyo and Osaka. Cool, cool. That's what I was going to hear. Um, okay, so how is the building evaluated in Japan? So in the States, when you buy a property, an evaluator comes out, looks at the house and says, okay, this is between X and Y. You should expect to evaluate it at that rate. When I bought a house in Japan, there was no such process. The, the bank was just happy to give me the loan because I was going to you know, pay them interest for the next 35 years. Um, how is the building, like uh, an apartment building, evaluated? And well, for owner-occupied properties, the process is a bit different. They're usually a lot happier to uh, approve those because they know you're going to be staying there and doing your damn best to pay the rent kind of thing. So it becomes a bit more of a, um, a, bit more of a science for investment properties. Well, and okay. they're usually, for loan evaluation, they're usually evaluated based on the, um, on the rental income that they do or can generate. Um, okay. So whatever the property is doing now, if it's tenanted and it's clear that it's making X money per month, that'll make it easier for the bank to evaluate it. Um, if it's completely vacant, then they'll go off comps in the area and they'll try to see what uh, that building could conceivably do. Um, okay. But it's not an official evaluator that comes out and looks at it. They just do that online mostly or through their databases. And when you say evaluation, the bank's evaluation and the market price and then the official government evaluation for property tax purposes, um, these are all different beasts, right? So they can be completely, mm -hmm. the, the prices could be completely not related to each other. Because that makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> they do try to update it every few years and then you'll see that the market price does tend to be a bit closer to what the government thinks it is, but... It does fluctuate a fair bit, um, even in Japan. So I'd say every two or three years past the last evaluation, it can it can differ quite a bit. And do you find that the government's evaluation is generally higher or lower than the the loan or the bank evaluation? It it could be either. It depends on what the area has done in recent years. So the bank's evaluation is usually closer to actual market price. Whereas the government's evaluation is based on uh, the last year or two or three years data. So okay. in places that have gone up or down, like say um, after the uh, 2011 tsunami, um, people stopped going to Sapporo for ski, right? Sure. And then uh, prices there fell off a cliff, but the government only caught up in their evaluations four or five years later. So we were seeing huge over-evaluations in uh, property tax statements, even though market price was very, very low. And uh, Fukuoka, for example, which is like a rising star, it was quite the opposite. So the government was still thinking um, old school. They were still thinking it's just a little unknown town. Well, meanwhile, we were seeing market prices almost doubling. Um, mm. But the government was, again, still four or five years back. Uh, in, in both places now, they've caught up. But whenever this sort of thing happens, there's going to be quite a gap there. Okay, cool. Um, we're rich on our 30-minute mark, and I, I don't want to keep you too long. You're right. <coughs> Last one. Um, so proximity to the station in Japan sort of directly or indirectly dictates rent prices, right? Are there any other factors that you should consider uh, with regard to the location uh, when buying a building? For example, proximity to a kombini or a police station or, or anything else? Um, well, firstly, with the distance to the station, it depends on what you're buying. If you're buying family-type properties, something that's, say, 2LDK and up, um, those would usually be rented by families and families would normally have at least one car, usually two. Okay. 
in which case proximity to the station isn't all that important. It, it's a lot more important when you talk about singles or young couples, so say up to one LDK. Um, and other factors... Um, It's more, it obviously affects rent a little bit, but it affects more the, um, the types of tenants that you're going to get there, right? So proximity to a hospital is obviously popular with the elderly folks. And proximity to a police station or a shopping center or department store is uh, quite popular with single females. And single males want to be close to a convenience store. They don't like to cook much. Um, so it, it really vary what types of tenants you're going to be able to get and I would and obvious um, proximity to parks for example again is more popular for families and so forth so it depends on the building and the layout of the units and what type of tenants you're going to be expecting there okay cool makes sense um, okay so um, I kind of collected a, a lot of the answers I was looking for and obviously I need to speak with the, the wife about um, you know Uh, the details yeah. if we want to move forward and start looking at properties um, and we would love and you know we were interested in, in using your company what would we do next to kind of start that next step well first you need to be aware that we're an added layer right so we're a buyer's agent and portfolio manager so we can we can help you through the sale and then let you uh, to put a property manager in place and then let you do the rest if your wife is um, Uh, or you are comfortable in receiving, uh, say, monthly reports from the property manager and answering their questions and taking action when that's required. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, we can also take on portfolio management uh, after the uh, settlement. And then we charge, uh, depending on the price of the property, between um, 3% to 5% of the price of the property for purchase. And then between 2% to 3% of the price of the, of the gross rental income for management. Um, and that's, the, I mean, there are capped minimums for how much we would charge per property per month and how much we would charge per settlement. But if you're looking at buildings, you're, you're going to be past that minimum anyway. So that's not an issue. And then to get us to work for you, we need um, that fee estimate paid, at least for your first purchase in advance. And then we'll credit or debit it post-settlement, depending on what the actual purchase price is going to end up being. Okay. And we also need, um, unless you're going to be attending and signing and doing everything uh, with us hand in hand, we'll also need authority to act on your behalf. So there's a couple of documents that we'll need to have um, uh, signed and stamped. Okay. All right, well, let me, um, let me do the conversation with the wife to see what kind of interest she would have in kind of being a part of this, because I think, uh, as you mentioned, the reports and the questions would probably be best dealt with by her. Yeah. Um, so I'll kind of have to get her to buy into the long-term. Well, I mean, only, only if you want her to be involved in the management. Most of the, um, honestly, most of the couples that we deal with, um, if, if it's a gaijin husband and a Japanese wife, the wife is usually, no, nah, I don't want to be a part of this at all. <laughs> well, you, you've probably met my wife then. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, I'm quite happy to be the, the point of contact. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I don't want to, I guess I would just at least need to get her to buy on to, to being an assistant, uh, meaning that if there's something I can't read or if there's a, a particular issue I can't address, that she's willing to kind of dive into that. Well, um, I mean, if I, you're, I would, that's only if you're not working through us. If you're working through us, then we'll always be there to give you explanations and stuff. 
So that's only if you want to self-manage after the settlement and just to save yourself those two or three percent, then yes, you'll need her. But otherwise, we can do it all for you. But um, I would definitely get her on board with the idea of investing in property generally. So, yeah. Right. So, so you got to get buy in some way. Yeah. Uh, is there a place where I can kind of go or or I guess I kind of want to put, get my feet wet a little bit and kind of look at a property that might be a candidate. Where, where can I go to kind of look at that? Is there a suggested website or is there some information you can provide that I can just have a visual and say, hey, here's the kind of thing that we would be investing in? Um, yeah, so I can send you a few spreadsheets with cheaper buildings that we've put out recently for customers. That'll give you a rough idea. And I can also give you a bunch of websites, um, Japanese property websites that you can search on your own or together with your wife if you want, and that they'll have a lot more. Yeah, just want a starting point so she has, so I don't just talk, right? If she sees something, it's a little easier to kind of digest. Yep, no problem. I'll send you a few a few uh, links. Fantastic. All right. All right, well, I, I stole four extra minutes out of you, so I don't want to keep you any longer than I promised. Um, let me have that discussion with her, and I can um, kind of go from there and get back with you uh, over email. Sounds Once good. I kind of know what's going on. All right. Pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Anytime. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. So there you go. A really well-focused uh, practical Q&A session there. And I hope the answers were as practical and as well-focused as the questions were for you. And again, as I mentioned before the call, we're always happy to answer more questions. Any time of the day or night, don't be shy. Hit us up in the comments section or wherever you might have found this episode or anywhere else via email, maybe on info at nippontradings.com with a double P. Um, our Facebook group, Japan Real Estate, we're also called Japan Real Estate, uh, all one word on Instagram. Whatever the platform, feel free to reach out. We're always happy to talk shop. And of course, if you've enjoyed this episode and you like the podcast, we would truly appreciate it if you could share it with your networks, spread the good word, let them know we're out there. And better yet, star rating, short review on the iTunes store or on Spotify, that would really make our day. And again, as I've mentioned at the start of the episode as well, if you're at all interested in reaching out to anyone who's an English speaker, in Japan or anywhere around the world with some sort of affiliation or interest in Japan, feel free to hit us up, find out more about our sponsorship offers. They're guaranteed to be very attractive uh, price-wise, a lot cheaper than what you'd expect advertising would cost, and they should generate some pretty amazing results for your business or project, of course, which is the whole point of the exercise. So that's it from us for today, folks. We hope to have you with us again next time here on the Japan Real Estate Podcast. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku!